0: Up here Friday, yeah. Episode nine. I'm joined with uh, Glendon Hyde, and we're gonna talk things uh, gender specifics. Uh, Glendon actually just graduated uh, Sac State today, bachelor's of arts in cultural anthropology. Um, Glendon, I'm not sure where you wanted to start, but I know I wanted to share your stories and your recent studies. Uh, late '90s, uh, you did your drag queen um through New York and eventually led your way to uh San Francisco. Uh you are currently reciting here in is this considered like downtown, midtown, Sacramento? I don't think it's quite midtown. I think it's
1: downtown still. Downtown. I think once you go past 16th. Yeah, that's like that's the chic midtown section of Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> How uh, how old are you, uh, Glendon? I will be 50 this September. 50 years. Yeah, which is pretty exciting because um, I just recently celebrated my 27th anniversary of finding out that, um, well, when they told me I had full-blown AIDS is the term they used. So um, obviously that didn't really mean as much as they thought. So, <laughs> right. So yeah, so it makes it much easier to get like weird... Saggy skin and stuff like that. When you're not, <laughs> when you've lived with like HIV for 27 years, you're kind of a little
0: more thankful, I think. Right. Was there uh, was there a lot of education uh, 27 years ago when you uh, found out that uh, you were HIV positive? I got a
1: phone call from the nurse who said, "I'm sorry to tell you this, but what we your blood shows that you have full blown AIDS and you don't have insurance, so we can't help you." Click. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. So um, but you know, luckily I wasn't the only person to have contracted HIV in New York. So
0: how did this uh how did this come to be? Was this part of um, you know, to say this uh was this part of the you know, the drag queen era? Um So, you know, I
1: mean, sex never really had anything to do with drag queens. And the reason I have HIV is because I like to punish myself because my parents uh, sort of instilled that in me at that time. I'm a little different now, but uh, like um, drag was not like a sexual thing at all. It was totally about performance and uh, finding a voice to have a healthy dialogue about my gender differentiation, which for most of my life was the thing that sort of kept me from, uh, being a, what they call an attractive guy. Cause I was too fey. I was, you know, and there was a lot of like, to be an attractive gay man, you have to be like masculine and you have to give off this like certain vibe. But luckily, um, you know, there's a long history of dandies and queers and Quentin Crisp and, You know, it's never the uh, macho gays who are trying to fit in who do anything to move the dialogue along. So it was better that I didn't fit in, I think. (laughs) And drag was a great outlet for that. And New York was ripe for a drag explosion in the East Village at that time. It was right before RuPaul hit with her first single and became a megastar. And the New York drag scene was like, Bursting to uh, like my first performance, I got to meet Debbie Harry and Bjork, so be part of like that sort of scene.
0: And what time frame are we talking when these drag days at the East Village in uh, in New York? Nineties. The
1: nineties was a really big. There was um,
0: Lady Bunny, was
1: has started uh, Wigstock, which was this all day, um, outdoor drag. Wood, woodstock and everyone took like acid or an alcohol and you know went and partied in these public parks and there was a long drag show and in the drag show people like Ultra Nate Not- Not- and Delight and a lot of like very famous club performers yeah. would come and perform as well so it it was like quite a scene and that's how I got into drag I took acid my first year in New York and went to and uh I remember Mona Foote, who was like this kind of burly black man. and came out as a, um, a Wonder Woman. And it just like, it sort of changed my life. I was like, ooh, wow, that looks fun. And then the next year I was there at Wigstock. Yeah. Wigstock? Was, yeah,
0: Wigstock. <laughs> There's a documentary too. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Would you say these, these drag shows, being a drag queen, was more about expression? And art than it was about um, being uh, gay, uh, lesbian, queer, um, yeah. transgender.
1: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about New York was that it wasn't just like drag queens. There were like club kids and there were like all kinds of personalities that like people would come dressed as giant frogs and stuff like that. Like there was a complete gender... Morph like you could be anything you wanted to be, and it was fueled by lots of partying and all night discos that went till nine the next day. And it and you know New York was very free then. It wasn't quite so expensive. There were um, yeah, it was it was a pretty spectacular time. Every place was crawling with like freaks of every sort. I mean. It makes Lady Gaga look very tame indeed. (laughs) Like there was a lot of stuff going on and people were investing in clubs.
0: It was a club scene in the nineties. We're alive and well in New York. Yeah. This village. Lyndon, take me back. Um, Now, were you born and raised in New York? Were you there for school? What's, what's the deets on uh, you ending up in New York? Um, My
1: parents are born again Christians and I was brought up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, I was first hospitalized for being gay and given shock treatment in first grade. And as soon as I got out of high school, I was like, ah, get me out of here. I actually stayed in Pittsburgh um, for a little while and tried college. But um, I just knew that I wanted to get out of there. And I wanted to get as far away from my parents as I possibly could. They're kind of dicks.
0: <laughs> like, you know. Are you... Um are you religious? Are you?
1: Uh no. Um, I sort of hope that after this life that I just become warm food and become part of the planet if it's still around or whatever. You know, I don't really feel the need to have another life. I've done so much in this one. I've had such a good time. Like, you know. And also, you know, when you grow up with parents who want to punish you for who you are, you do get to develop some really special like emotional behavior problem so i'm not really sure
0: like longevity like i'm just glad i'm happy do you uh do you you still have a relationship with your your family no they don't accept you for who you are their own their own goddamn son no they they don't like me i just Uh, find that appalling
1: um You know, like, well, back to when I found out I had AIDS, you know, so I hung up the phone with the nurse and I called my mom because, you know, that's what you do. You freak out, you call your mom. And three days later, I got a $10 check and a get well card. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was like the point where I was like, okay, done. Like, I, I had had enough. Like, that didn't seem very Christian to me. <laughs> uh, are you an only child?
0: Are you an only child, Glendon? Or? No, I have
1: a younger sister, and she's the one who really got the family um, to be born again. She was like promiscuous, I guess, in high school. Um, you know, my, my mother was very controlling. She was very uh, afraid. She's always been very afraid, and that has to do with her upbringing and her father and sisters, but she really passed, tried to pass that on. So my sister caught it. And there, I think a lot of the new born-again Christian is all about fear. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would agree. Yeah. So your, your loving, comfortable arms of your parents turn you away because of who you are? Uh, no, I don't think
1: so. I think... See, this is... Um, so when we talk about anthropology and the thing that I'm trying to change when I create a new identity uh, model for queer people... I don't think my parents turned me away for who I was. I think they turned me away because of who they were. Like, I'm not going to accept that responsibility.
0: Yeah. You know? And you shouldn't.
1: No, I shouldn't. And gay people shouldn't. Like, and you think about, like, so I study gender and how gender has come about. And um, I interviewed a bunch of trans uh, men who the number one reward after transitioning to appear as male through removing breasts and taking hormones is that number one reward is feeling safe in public, which I think says a lot about transition and the power of men and our current society. And that makes me question, like, is uh, this whole need to appear heteronormative actually healthy for the queer community? And where is the non-binary... Identity that we're so famous for. Very nice. Yeah. So, self as I would love to say an anarchist, but I'm not quite that, <laughs> not quite that brave. <laughs> um, I would say that I think socialism is pretty cool. I when I went to Sweden and the Netherlands and did some traveling in Europe, I, Europe seemed okay to me. There weren't like droves of homeless people living unhoused i mean that is a crime against humanity and it makes me sick that we would be a nation that allows that and then like revels in punishing them like it's
0: gross (laughs) we've talked uh uh, a couple about uh you know socialism on my podcast and it's just fascinating how america just can't come to accept it they hear the word and they think it's uh this wild and crazy idea that wouldn't work um (laughs)
1: Yeah, my brother-in-law, who went to Harvard, got in a Facebook fight with me when I I was trying to make it up with him last summer, right before the Republican National Convention, which quickly afterwards, I was like, that's it. Again, we've had enough. But um, he was trying to tell me that, you know, I have a pretty cushy life typing away on my Apple computer. Do you think I'd be able to do that in Sweden? And I was like, yeah, actually, I kind of do. You know, it's not... Yeah. But I think it's funny that he would fight uh, my desire for socialism with authoritarianism and fascism. I mean, that doesn't seem like a better answer.
0: <laughs> I don't try to shine any light on, uh, you know, the, the president. Um, about the gays, lesbians, queers, transgenderism. Um, what are your thoughts on? We talked some pre-show notes and um, uh, the the gay and lesbian community, but I want to be able to educate my listeners.
1: Seeing to me, um, having been sort of like almost exclusively queer when I moved to New York in the early, and even in Pittsburgh, I was exclusively queer. I lived in an exclusively queer lifestyle. There was sort of that separation um, since I was at least 18. And then Sacramento is the first time I have lived really as a non-queer uh, centric community. So for a long time, I've really buried myself in the queer community and sort of made it my culture because I really do believe it is a culture. And um, the difference now is that there's like this normalization, very much like you can normalize the fact that we're constantly at war or that you can normalize the idea that, you know, that many people are so racist that they would vote for the current administration. Like, you know, you can understand sort of anything, but what I don't get is, like, for example... When I was in New York, the word tranny meant sister. We used to call each other tranny, and it used to mean sister. And um, suddenly now the new queer community doesn't want to use tranny because they've been hurt by the word. But, you know, the idea is, like, I've been hurt by faggot, but I always use faggot because that's me taking it back. Um, You know, there is cultural history across the board of people taking words and reappropriating them. Right. But it's interesting that like, queer people would choose censorship instead and say, well, I'm so hurt and we can't use this word. And, and I think that's a little weird. And when I was getting my AA in queer uh, studies at City College in San Francisco, one of my first classes, we were talking about slang words. And this kid said, well, I looked up the F word. And I thought, the F word? What did he look up? I looked up pansy. I always thought that was a great one. <laughs> Um, and uh, he was like, oh, faggot, and he's gay. He's an 18-year-old gay kid in a gender studies class who felt that he couldn't use the word faggot in a safe space even, and I think that is really dangerous I, because I think that once you accept someone else telling you what is appropriate for you to use and call yourself and to use for your own empowerment is really dangerous it's interesting that a lot of these, the trans men that I interviewed in my study, like they, or even the trans women that, you know, I uh, worked with in New York and knew in San Francisco and stuff, uh, where does this idea of being in the wrong body come from? I mean, how did all of them know by the age of six they were in the wrong body? I don't think that at six people are that wise and then people will say but they felt that way well okay but I don't think that if we lived in a society that wasn't like you know if you're feeling a little fay or if you look like a butch woman then you're in the wrong body and you should really do something about that and I think it's kind of like neoliberalism making you pay for your gender you know, and pay to fit into society's norms. And I find it really kind of a little disturbing. And, you know, and it goes along with censorship and it goes along with narrowing identities. And it comes from um, criminality, gays being brought up as criminals um, and as medical experiments. Um, One of my favorite studies was this one where they did... uh, they were looking for the gay gene. And like, first of all, why look for the gay gene? It would be so much better to look for the homophobe gene. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but so, you know, and they went into it saying, oh, you know, it's baffled people for centuries. And actually it hasn't baffled people for centuries. There has been queerness since the Paleolithic. There are queer culture throughout every culture before the export of Christianity and Um, you know, world religion, trying to control people's behaviors. And before that, there was plenty of room for everyone to do as they wished. You know, I mean, not always, but it wasn't quite as narrow and binary. And I think, you know, because we don't, that has been criminalized and medicalized out of us, then we don't have anywhere to start as a
0: whole person. So how did you get to Sacramento what landed you here?
1: I had was doing really well at City College, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get out of San Francisco because it's too expensive, and I got accepted to Portland State on a 10000 a year scholarship, and I lost my funding for my last semester at City College and didn't have the money to move to Portland. Mm-hmm. So here I am. <laughs> were, you,
0: um, were you... Were you... Going to Portland State to study cultural anthropology?
1: Yeah, and they're like one of the top 100 research schools in the nation. They're like a really, really good school. And um, they were really interested in my degrees and stuff, but I had a parrot at the time, and I couldn't figure out how to get up there with the parrot and come back and do all that after losing. And the reason I lost the... um, Funding was because in 1986 I had attempted uh, some schooling, and those credits counted against me.
0: How could those credits count against you?
1: I know. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) I'm not just gonna bag like Republicans. I can cross-party shame. That was a horrible thing that he did. Oh Jesus. Yeah. Even even my horrible mother was like, "That was 30 years ago," and I said, "Exactly." I was like, so now I'm being punished for something I did 30 years ago. I mean, it wasn't even a drug offense, and I'm still getting... And not that there's anything wrong with drug offenses. That's another thing that I'm re- I feel really strongly about. Is like, if whoever listens to this should look up uh, safe use sites and uh, get really involved in the decriminalization of drug use.
0: They do that in... I've read uh, studies in Portugal. Where they, yeah. They do that... Um, yeah.
1: Portugal is a great study. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, San Francisco is fighting for safe use facilities in their city, and uh, Seattle and Vancouver and a couple of other places in North America have
0: them, and they seem to work really well. Do they see that their uh, the drug use is significantly lower than? So
1: what happens is, um, again, these people are given sort of some dignity. Just because they have a health problem doesn't mean that they should be denied dignity. I mean, we don't deny cancer patients dignity, so why we do this for them? I don't understand. So they go in, the nurses check it, and they can use there. And then there's actually usually maybe a possibly a chill out room in some of them. So again, they're like creating a community, they're connecting to each other. And when I was working at the needle exchange, people are really responsible. Like if they're given the opportunity to bring needles back, like a lot of them do. And secondly, none of those needles even have to go out onto the street if people had a clean, safe place to use. You know, like, we wouldn't have needles on the street if they could use somewhere. And um, I think it's something like uh, 20% more people end up seeking some sort of help, like, immediately from the facilities. They have intake rooms there. So... I mean, all in all, it's just... Although, mis- met, their mission is not to get people off of drugs. It's to allow them to use drugs safely. Safely. Yeah. It's not about yeah punishment at all. Well,
0: it's going to be a hell of an insurance policy in these places. Are, uh...
1: <laughs> but, you know, they have Narcon. So, if you do overdose, they There's can... There's somebody there. Yeah, right there.
0: That's interesting. That is very interesting.
1: Yeah, they, they're really cool. My friend Laura Thomas, who's the... Um, Regional Deputy Director of the Drug Policy Alliance for the West
0: Coast. It is really She works really hard on that. The, the drag shows, uh, 1990 in the East Village. Was there a lot of drug use that was being used um, in uh, that community? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it's New York. So, I mean, it
1: was New York in the <laughs> 90s. So, yeah, there was a lot of drug use. Um, luckily, I wasn't really much of a doper. I like things that are more social. Although, uh, when we did, we had a girl rock band called the mall chicks and we used to go down to this place between b and c like it was like second between b and c and the bucket would come down and you put your money in the bucket and the bucket would go up and the bucket would come back down and you take your heroin out and you go back home with your <laughs> <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> the bucket drops totally they call that. <laughs> And, you know, I only went there a couple of times. I mean, I've never really been super addictive. I think I probably would say that I have a definite, like, penchant for pot. I love marijuana. Um, but at my age, I don't really even drink anymore. And I was quite a good binge alcoholic as a drag queen, too. But, um, I mean, heroin was just dumb. It's just It was just dumb
0: for me. I didn't really like it. Kurt Cobain was doing it in the 90s.
1: Yeah, but he was in pain... And I also think that, um, like, I don't, I think some people have mental illnesses that take them out of their head, and they can't really get back inside. And I'm the kind of person where, like, the idea of doping out and being stuck in here with all the voices, that's not for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, it, it just depends on who and what you are. So it just wasn't for me. And also, who wants to be sitting around in a glamorous dress, nodding out? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, Waste your whole so outfit boring. on that. <laughs> yeah. So boring. But some of my friends got really like hooked into it. But, you know, whatever.
0: Are you in uh, contact with any of the people that you used to do uh, shows with?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Linda Simpson from uh, the Pyramid. She did Channel 69. And then the head of Boy Bar and uh, like, he's a really good friend of mine. He was always a very, very caring uh, person. He really had a stable of drag queens that he really, and transgender women that he really uh, nurtured. And he was really closely associated with uh, Patricia Fields, who was the uh, stylist for, uh, what was that show? Everyone, all the gays will know it except for me. Um, the, gir- <laughs> the women in New York who, and what's her Are you name? Talking like the knows? Real Housewives? No, it was before that. It was actually a written show. Kim Cardell? Kim. Kardashian? No. Oh, Ooh, no, sorry, no it was like a scripted show and it was on, and it was the four girls and they always had cocktails in New York. Oh, and Sex didn't. in the City? Yes. Yeah.
0: So she yeah. did all the close for that. So uh, just to a disclaimer, I don't know why I know that, uh, <laughs> but uh because it was a cultural it, phenomenon. I think it was the uh, the the, uh, the four girls and the, the drinks, I think you had yeah. me there. That was uh no, I watched the show.
1: No, I watched uh, it. I mean, it was very yeah, it was kind of like the dynasty of its time, I guess. I've never I don't
0: think I've seen an episode of Glendon, so I don't even know. Oh, you I, haven't? No. I'm going to go home probably YouTube it. Yeah. Netflix
1: it's it. not yeah. If you can make it through a whole season, let me know. Okay. Oh. Yeah, no, I mean, in New York, I was like rock and roll. I liked rock and roll. I went to New York thinking that I was going to meet like Susie Susie Sue walking down the street every day. And really, New York wasn't very much about rock and roll. It was really about the dance scene. I think that was the only time I ever was like totally like Gaga for dancing and All night long. It was weird, because Pittsburgh was a good rock and roll scene, and San Francisco has a good rock and roll scene, but not New
0: York. I mean, it did, but there's more of a club atmosphere there in New York. Yeah. You hitch. You hitch a ride from Pittsburgh. New Um, York. You take a flight. Train. No, I
1: took a bus, and I arrived in New York. I had met this. Young man, and we had met in Pittsburgh, and that we got along. And then I went to see him at his school, and we got along. And I had never been to New York City. Actually, he was going to school outside of New York, and I said, "Okay, time to move to New York." Because I told you I was like ready to go. Yeah. So I arrived with I think 150
0: dollars. And how old were you, Glendon? I was 21, 22. You hadn't done any drag before. And new no, no, This was all new to you.
1: Yeah, it was great, though. But, you know, it was also really good because uh, drag was really hitting. Fashion and drag were really compatible, and I was very pretty in drag. I was extremely, extremely tiny. I think I was, like, 115 pounds when I arrived in New York, and 5'8", and I'd been swimming my whole life. I was a competitive swimmer, so I was very, like, toned and stuff, and... I just made a really pretty girl.
0: Culturally, uh, for drag, did you have to be gay? Or could anybody that just wanted to be in drag could be drag? Of course. How was that culture of, of drag? Was it anybody you know, could do it as long you're as If you're talented, you
1: good? they'll let anyone in the door. You know what I mean? Like It wasn't like queer exclusive. I mean, it is a queer medium. It is a queer storytelling. So it's not something that I hope is appropriated by straight people being but at the same time I mean
0: it's open to anybody yeah
1: if if you have a good story and like uh, I had a friend do uh, a benefit once and his name was Wilma Fingerdo (laughs) 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 and um, he read poetry and I thought it was great but I always really liked a drag queen who couldn't when we did our club Charlie Horse we really liked an oddball drag queen, like uh, Bonnie Sawyer, who has, like, maybe two teeth and has uh, very bad, like, pains from long-term HIV, like, so she would get up there in her socks and sing Dolly Parton with no teeth, which I... And then just the the reaction of the audience is really the best part of... Like, because they're all just shocked. And I think it's really important that, like, Bonnie Sawyer get up there and be like, you know, it's not all just... High cheekbones I mean, and glamour. And theater?
0: Would you say it was more theater?
1: It was more punk rock. More punk rock. It was like, if you can make Dolly Parton punk rock. I'm
0: thinking Rocky Horror Picture Show.
1: Yeah, a little bit like that. Anna Warhola used to, she was like living on the street, and she would do something with a whip, and she never knew the words, and then she would strip, and then eventually she would strip off her skirt, and her balls would just be hanging out on either side <laughs> of her, like... <laughs> And, you know, I thought that was great. I just thought it was so, it's, like... It's art. Yeah. You know, we paid to get in, so they couldn't complain. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Is this a, a,
0: but, Glennon, were you getting paid to do this, or was this what you did to express uh,
1: I got, um, by then, what happened was, um, in 2004, after... I was getting paid in New York. I was making a living in New York. I was making a good living in New York, uh, modeling and doing shows every week, like several shows every week. And, uh, you know, and then also, if you were a famous drag queen in New York, you never had to pay for anything. You went to restaurants, and they gave you free food, and you always drank for free, and it was great. Uh, you never had to pay to get into a club. And then um, in San Francisco, I ran Charlie Horse after winning the Miss Tranny Shack title in 2004. And then I probably that into sort of a political career. Before political, going to
0: school. Uh, political and what uh, happened? What I advocate. ran
1: for a supervisor of District 6 and ended up coming in fourth out of 15. And I ran as Glendon Anaconda Hyde. And I, uh, my platforms were safe use facilities, uh, decriminalizing the homeless, and saving cultural space. And had I known that I should have been touting um, Pedestrian safety,
0: you know, so probably, social issues there at yeah. the time.
1: But, you know, we did actually have a, uh, all 15 candidates had a debate, um, public debate about safe use sites, which was not set up. And I, so I'm really proud that I got a bunch of politicians running for office to talk about drug use in public. That was pretty awesome. <laughs>
0: Now, uh, would anybody know that you were a drag queen outside of, of the clubs? Would you just be everyday, you know, like I'm seeing you now?
1: Um, yeah, I'm really different now than I was. I, I've grown into my manness. Like, <laughs> it's just now I'm just sort of like, I'm turning into a man as I age. You know, I'm starting to get a gut and, you know, I, my beard is much thicker than it used to be. Um, but, um, you know, when I was doing a lot of drag, I had shaved my eyebrows off. So I kind of probably looked like someone who was doing theater, I would think. (laughs)
0: Because
1: I didn't have any eyebrows. And of course, there was always like makeup residue. And although I can't remember going out in the day a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) Although my friends and I did one day get all dressed up, um, sort of Elton John drag and uh, just a lot of like weird knits and glasses and lipstick and went uh, thrift shopping on the Upper Upper East Side. That was fun. (laughs) And like all these women were like, (laughs) ugh. But you know, that was just it. Like, yeah. It's hard to come to Sacramento and have everyone being like, but you know, I don't fit into the gay community anymore at all. I was like an activist for so long and now... My communities abandon me. They think marriage and children, and you know, fitting into the uh,
0: social norms that we have yeah. placed upon ourselves.
1: Yeah, they think that that's really great. But like, without difference, how does change happen? You know, like good point. Queers are missing out on their like lot in life. We're here to create change, not to stagnate.
0: Uh, have you felt that the culture has changed? Uh, since the, the 90s? So we're talking 20 years. Has um, it become more socially acceptable? Well,
1: I've been out since the 80s. Like, I was definitely out in the 80s. I came out to my parents at, like, 16. So, and people in school, there was no hiding it. I mean, this is my deep masculine voice <laughs> that I'm um, talking on a microphone has given me and talking in front of communities. But I used to be really high-pitched, Um and, and I changed it just because, like, it wasn't a good communicative voice. Like, it wasn't communicating anything except for fear and sort of like a resistance to be a person. Um, but you know, like, the difference is is that now it's you're supposed to follow the rules instead of break them. You know, you're. It's everyone's talking about how great it is that we can have children. And yet, when you look at, like, two-spirit Native Americans, like, they were given altruistic positions to engage with the community because they were of non-procreative nature. People saw that as a service as opposed to something that needed to be changed and made normal. And I think, you know, if gay people really applied themselves, we could definitely... Make some changes. One of my favorite things that I read this last year was about how some of the indigenous tribes are now fighting for cultural recognition as part of their their, uh, human rights. So it's not just their land and their socioeconomic well being, but their ability to identify as a culture and with an identity. And I think queer people could really learn a lot from that because instead of um, saying, like, well, if you get married, you get rights. Like, why does my monogamy give me rights? So if I'm not monogamous, I don't get rights? I don't think that's very fair. Yeah. Like, you know, who invited you to my party? (laughs) 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 So, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's very hard when you, like I said, you've been criminalized and medicalized your whole life and told you're wrong. Like, so you start to believe it and then you start to have your rights and stuff like that uh, given to you by being a good gay. Well, I hope I'm never a good gay. That's all I can say. I hope I'm always a thorn in someone's side.
0: Have you uh, ever felt less in society that you were not given the opportunities that you were uh, awarded because of, uh, in a sense, who you are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think even now. I mean, I'll tell you, Sac State... Can say a lot about, like, how giving and stuff they are, but I think it's really hard to be a, an out gay person on that campus. Nobody wants, like, the fag in the office doing their work. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what, what? I can't... I don't, you know, and I don't know if that's truly fair. I think it would if I was, like, one of the gays who had children and would just shut up and, you know, allow straight people to take over the gay bars at 9 o'clock in Sacramento and not complain that there's nowhere for me to cruise... Like, if I would just shut up and follow the rules, then I would have an easier time. But people don't, people don't, they want to conform. Like, people really want to conform.
0: I just fucking don't understand that, Glendon. Because it's easier. Because it's easy.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you've been an outsider and you've been told that you're wrong, like, even though they're the ones that are, like, you know, it's much easier to conform because then you don't really have to think and you don't have to talk to people and you don't have to engage them. You can Twitter away all day, you know, and not say anything.
0: I, um, you know, I won't sit here and say I know what it's like, but I know what you mean in a way where I don't show my political views at the bar. You know, Mm -hmm. you just just don't do that. You don't show your religious views. So I can see, do you find yourself uh, hiding who you are in certain social uh, situations? Um, for fear, uh, or maybe not even fear, is maybe the wrong word, but hiding who you are to fit in more in and not... uh,
1: I never had to in New York and San Francisco. And in Pittsburgh, I was just like a ballsy little naive. And I was tiny, so it would be really mean to hit the tiny kid. (laughs) So, like, I was kind of safe that way. It's not until I came to Sacramento that... I mean, I never go out. I never do anything. I go to the bars and people tell me, why can't I just, you know, why do I always have to question? And um yeah, I don't know. It's, but also, you know, I'm not hanging out with 24 year olds. I'm hanging out with people who have invested in their homes and have invested in their cars and have invested in, this kind of lifestyle and I'm someone who has resisted that as hard as I possibly could for as long as I possibly can. And it's not easier to do that by any means, but I don't know. It's just, it's just who I am and I'm not going to change. you know why I wouldn't change that. I grew up to, that's why I like punk rock so much. Cause it's sometimes it's really, really terrible, but I still love it. (laughs) Like, you know,
0: resist.
1: Yeah, totally. I don't you know, I remember in the 80s when we used to call people sellouts and I thought I am never going to sell out. I am never going on vacation at Disneyland. I'm just not. That's not for me. I don't want that. And I don't think people should just assume that that's what they should want. It makes me worried.
0: Lennon, if you were to what is uh, what would you say is your American dream? What is because the American dream is, is, is dead. Mm-hmm. But for 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 Glendon Hyde, what is the American dream? I don't think I think I, it's different I, for everybody. It doesn't have to be the white picket fence married with two kids and you got a career. Uh, because I feel like we're in a changing world where, you know,
1: I don't really think about myself as a nationalist ever. I like I could care less about being an American, so I've never had an American dream. If I was to have a dream, it would be that something I did was worth remembering long after I'm gone. Like just anything that I've done, like something in my art, something that I said, something that I've written, something that created change on some level that would carry on. And I know that that even doesn't really matter because eventually, Things will carry on and you're left behind but as long as i i feel like i've worked really hard to get people to see things other than black and white or straight or gay or right or wrong and i've worked really hard on myself not to see things like that and i i hope that i can leave a little bit of that but it's not an american dream i you know yeah i guess i guess maybe um yeah, I would like people to think of queers as part of the natural habitat and not different but equal.
0: It's twenty seventeen, Glendon. Why haven't we been able to to achieve that? Why do we got to take these steps back? Because people are finally can come out of the woodworks because you know the 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 man in the office. Can but
1: be- so think about why people can come out of the woodwork. It's like you can be gay, you can be black, you can be Asian, you can you can be anything you want. But can you really or is everyone like funneled into this dream? I mean, if you're black, they say you can be anything you want until we shoot you and then your dream's over. You know what I mean? But the idea is that everyone is out out and doing this and is really different and that I think is the fallacy that marketing has sold America I think marketing is probably the worst thing about capitalism because it makes people feel safe in something that's not true or real it's it's an idea an image that people are grasping and saying this is how we are when it's not so I, you know I think that's kind of just like gay people who feel like believing people who tell them that they're in a wrong body, like I, I really, you know, if we were really out there and all showing up, like maybe we would stop telling people they're in the wrong body, and then we wouldn't have to spend fifty thousand dollars to change our body to be in the right body.
0: Do you think they say that because they just don't understand?
1: Um, I think it's to the point where it's just not part of the dialogue. Like, you think of everything as man and woman. And, I mean, even um, in queer sitcoms or whatever, it's all about the marriage and the getting together. And, like, there's never... um, There's very often not... There are very few movies that address queers as queers as opposed to products of the gay... Of the straight community, um, where gender is fluid and identity isn't wrapped up in um, male or female. And when you don't have people talking about that, then you assume, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's really about the dialogue. It's because the dialogue hasn't changed. It's just, it's why we voted for this current presidency is because people were not admitting that they're just like really racist and really angry and really fed up. And at the same time, they're also saying, you know, I'm really fed up with anything that isn't me. And this reality star makes a really good noise and it makes me laugh. And I I'm doing speed and I'm going to go vote. I think that's where America is. That's why I don't have an American dream. It's not about money and it's not about a car and it's not about I that makes I just don't. I don't see why that's so important because you're not, none of it goes with you. I mean, if you're not working to have the most experienced open life that you can possibly have and deal with what it shows you, then why bother? Like, because there's some reward later, like prove it. Okay. (laughs) Like, first of all, prove it. And even if there is, I'm sure I could be like, oh, dude, I totally, you know, or dudette, I totally did <laughs> not even know that I was coming to see you, ma'am. Um, please forgive me. And she would totally open the door and let me in anyhow. Yeah. So because that that's how it works. So I'm going to hang out with the junkies and see how it goes until then. Uh, not that I'm a junkie. I don't want to say yeah, right, like right. people thinking that I'm shooting up smack, not that I think there's anything wrong with it. But as I said, I like pot. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, people aren't honest and people are afraid and they're afraid of the modern world and they're afraid of the modern world because it's not offering them anything because cars and houses and all that stuff. So then they try and make sense of that by saying, well, then I'm going to follow God, but I don't, I think they already were. I think that, you know, It's when you say, I'm gonna follow God and excuse all these behaviors that I do that are completely bad for the environment or that can hurt other people or limit people's expression and rights. I, you know, like that must come from a lot of pain. And I'm sorry that you're so like left out, but, you know. I'm sorry you have to take it out on yourself, really. Because you're making everyone else miserable.
0: So what made you want to study cultural anthropology with an emphasis on gender, aside from what we've talked about in the previous yeah. segments?
1: Well, you know, I didn't know I wanted to study anthropology. I just kind of went to school, and I wasn't sure that I'd be able to do the math and the English, and that's sort of what I was most worried about. I was just like, Ugh, well, I, I'm old, and all these kids are really young. Will I be pleasant enough to make it through this class? And sometimes I was, not all of them, but also I was really invested. If I was going to be there, I was going to be invested. and so teachers realized that, and they saw like my uh, drive and um when I didn't when I had applied to go to and gotten the scholarship to Portland State and couldn't move there, I had to get into school immediately, um, and I looked at places to that had really good anthropology departments. And Sac State is like in the top three. It has a really good, of course, it's archaeology more, although I think they're improving their uh, cultural. Um, But I just, I thought, well, it's not far. I know I can move there, and I'm sure it's cheap. And then I got here, and they are building a stadium. It's not really quite as cheap. Although, can I just say, raising the rent because you're building a stadium, that is the stupidest, stupidest thing I have ever heard Do, in my entire um, is life. Is that what we
0: call uh, gentrification?
1: Yeah, it's totally gentrification. Here's a good story. Um, so in San Francisco, you know, I became like this sort of go-to drag queen. Like, I, I really became like sort of the it girl for many years. Yeah. Um, Partly because I was caustic and funny and just didn't, and we did a lot of political. We did like when they, um, even though I don't believe in gay marriage, I think people should be able to make whatever mistake they want to. Um, They, uh, we did the, uh, we used to do these uh, parades on our Friday nights and the Polk used to be the gay street in San Francisco But it's now all these Marina girls, lots of blondes with like their new breasts and um, tiny, tiny little clothing. And um, daddy's card have now taken over sort of the San Francisco street that was the original gay street. And uh, so we used to do the Take Back the Polk march where we would walk down the street and say, take back the Polk, Marina girls go home. And the girls would see us coming and they'd be like,
2: Oh yeah, Jagget
1: yeah, And they would hear what we're saying and they're like, That's mean. <laughs> I love being mean. But so um, after Prop Eight passed, we all pooped in Tupperware and wrapped it up for the justices who allowed Prop 8 to be upheld as constitutional and left it on this seat, you know, with little here's for you. So we just left them a little poop.
0: Something that the voters voted on and you're trying to repeal it?
1: Um, the thing is, is like the way the whole situation went down was a very interesting thing. There were a lot of people who were trying to blame black churches, which was my favorite argument. Like it's because of black churches that bigotry won. Like, um, okay, like, whatever, that doesn't even make sense. Um, bigotry doesn't really have a color. And, you know, just like gay people are fighting so hard to be normal, I, I think that black people who feel that they need to be uber-Christian and believe that gays are horrible are just trying to fit in so that they're not singled out and abused, you know? I, so I'm not going to blame them for, who, you know, that for some black people believing that way because I can understand why they do. What I think we should talk about is, like, why any person – should think that gays are a danger instead of, like, trying to blame an ethnic minority for the <laughs> passing of Prop 8. I think that would be a much better conversation than singling out, you know, I think I'm pretty...
0: Yeah, I think I'm good on that, too. Wow. So blame the blacks again. Huh? Blame the blacks again. Yeah,
1: totally. And this one guy was really, like, fighting with me on Facebook. It's before I stopped my Facebook, Facebook fighting and uh, changed my profile to have less friends. I want less friends. I just want less. Like, I'll tell you, the reason I didn't think I could get through school is because, and like, and I've talked about myself as bipolar, and you just talked about ADHD, and I just want to say that I don't like believe in any of that crap anymore. I don't. I mean, we have a society that is so stringent and so narrow that anything out of the norm has to be, like, labeled and medical, like, you have to make money off of it. And um, the and as far as education, so I was taking this seminar, and they were talking about how um, they've gotten rid of No Child Left Behind because that was a horrible policy that only made people work towards a test. So now we are teaching to the test, and that is how we are going to allow our... Um, ethnic minorities to succeed because we are going to teach them math and English. And, like, you know, I bloody fucking would hate that. That's why I hated high school. That's why I hated, like, my first attempt at college. Like, it's not that you are at fault. Again, just like the gay people. Like, we're not at fault. It's like, you know, the educational system runs on statistics. They start to shell out money statistically on who can pass tests because that means diddly squat, you know? So I think it's really important that Americans like start to uh, really engage as intellectuals because I think Americans should be intellectuals. And I think if we're not engaging ourselves as intellectuals, then we are going to continue to allow um, high school textbooks to say that uh, Moses was a father of democracy,
0: <laughs>
1: you know? It's just like, you know what? I don't want to live in a uh, morally Christian, I'm doing like quotes for those of you at home, <laughs> but I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that moral world because it's, it's a fallacy. And the only way to fight it is, is with intelligent conversation. And that's really, really important because unintelligent conversation has allowed us to give Kim Kardashian billions of dollars for no reason. And that, there's just no excuse for that. (laughs) Yeah,
0: there really isn't.
1: There isn't. I left my um, partner um, of seven years and I weren't getting along and he finally like flipped his lid and i left and i went to my friend's house and i was like i don't care what's on tv i don't care i just i just want something noise just and 3 minutes into the kardashians i was like turn it off like i can't take any more that is horrible that is horrible tv that is terrible insulting tv that is horrible
2: i agree oh uh-huh.
1: people love that like i you know and the like housewives like Like, I can't even watch a parody of it. It's so bad. The only um, reality TV that I did enjoy was Australia's Next Top Model. Amazing. The girls are all really nice to each other. And they're all really, like, they're not, like, mean mall brats that will make good TV. They're actually going to be models. So it's, like, a great modeling show. So, yeah, Australia's Next Top Model. And I really liked Project Runway's. I thought they were all really good because it's that they're actually doing something. But, and uh, the girls next door, because those Hugh Hefner's girlfriends were always so nice to each other. And they just did really nice, exciting things. And they were pretty. And they just walked around doing it. It was like, (laughs) it was kind of like a Stepford Wives sort of, which I just found a really fascinating sort of idea. Like, but they were so nice to each other. You never see people being nice to each other, like, ever. I was so fascinated by the theory of, like, a whole... I always wanted to do Anaconda's Happy News. (laughs) Like, where Johnny got an A on his test today, or... How are you going to sell advertising? Exactly. (laughs) If I'm not telling them their floor isn't good enough... It leads, it leads, Glendon. Come on. Yes, well, as you know, I'll work for free, so... (laughs) So it's not really a worry for me. I'm not a capitalist. Somebody will pay for my aids, <laughs> and I now not have to change my gender. So I've saved myself a lot of money
0: there too. <laughs> and if there's something you want to end on, what would you, uh, what would you like to end on on uh, episode nine, where I wanted to educate um, people that don't understand uh, gender identity, um, cultural anthropology, um, you know, what, what would you like to end on?
1: I'd like to tell a little story. It's about two male penguins who lived in a zoo in Germany. And like many male penguins before them, Without enough female mates, they pair bonded, and because through natural selection, which is a totally random process, m- penguins tend to have extremely high uh, parenting, parental sort of need. They have to. They live in a very harsh environment. They have. They have this idea that as many babies as they can get into the next, as many of those genes as they can make live the better so if two males do it if two females do it well usually there's not another uh, two females because there tend to be fewer females so so if these men can like get that egg into the next generation like all the better so we have this happening in the zoo as part of natural selection they're taking eggs from straight penguins First of all, there's no such thing as a fucking gay penguin. (laughs) They're not wearing chaps and like getting fisted on Folsom Street during the high gay holidays. They are not gay. Gay is a cultural term that is made up and it means whatever we apply it to. However, to say that a parenting instinct by nature makes two penguins gay... It's completely insane, okay? Because they are not doing poppers and listening to Donna Summer. They're not. There are no such thing as gay penguins. But what did this zoo do? Well, first, they decided they had to separate them, you know, because they were disrupting the natural occurrences, which we already have discussed how that's wrong. And so these gay penguins have been separated, but it didn't stop there. What did they do? They flew in two beautiful Swedish female penguins to distract them. Okay, so first of all, how do we know these two Swedish female penguins aren't gay and like Joan, you know, like are listening to Joan Jett all night and the gay men just want to listen to Barbara Streisand. Like they weren't going to get along. And they're not gay or lesbian, and also female birds tend to choose their mates. They're the ones who choose because they have the special package that is a lot more expensive to produce than semen. So they're a lot more picky. Maybe they wouldn't have even liked these two guys. But either way, it's a natural thing that they were doing. And everyone kept talking about them as their gay penguins. There's no such thing as fucking gay penguins. Stop making everything so binary. I guess that's how I would end
0: my story. (laughs) (laughs) Did these uh so-called uh quote quotation gay penguins mate with these Swedish?
1: No. No, I mean, because, so the zoologists, but it wasn't even up to the males to do it. Well, That's yeah. where, you know, it's not yeah. up to them. Yeah. It was up to the females. And like, why Swedish penguins? Penguins aren't from Sweden. Do you think they look like, all look like Elky Summer to like <laughs> other penguins? They're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Swedish penguins. So penguin. these
0: zoologists just didn't even. They just assumed that these Swedish. Well,
1: it's like when you look for a gay gene. Like, you look for a gay gene. Like, why does it. Like, gay is a cultural term. How can it be genetic? Like, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's made up. Good point. Gay is totally made up. There is no gene that does made up things. There just isn't. That's not how biology works.
0: But people that don't know... Well, Well, no, they've all been brainwashed. (laughs) Lyndon, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. This is... uh... It's going to be a fun episode to edit. I look forward to uh, editing this with Brittany. Yay. Who finally yeah. joins the show in the background. Here's- and we're ending on Madonna. Like, what could be gayer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Sorry. I was just... <laughs> I was going to tell her to roll a, a smoke. Oh, yeah. If you're so inclined to... Lovely.
1: Do you want some light?
0: No, I don't have light. Okay. Lennon, I'm really going to have to edit this. I'm just
1: kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know,
2: right? Sorry. No, I don't need
0: light. Well, I turned it on anyway. Usually uh, during my uh, my podcast, I uh, I usually drink a lot because I'm at home. Uh. So every 10, 15 minutes, I'm on a pee break. So I'm, I'm used to uh,
2: having to edit all that out. Yeah,
0: Brittany yeah. gets to listen to some of the. I get to listen to
2: it all while he's editing, so I get to hear the before and after on all the.
0: So, definitely keeping all this in, though, Glenn, because the listeners want to know uh, <laughs> totally. how long it takes my wife to roll a spleef. Spre- uh, well, what we do. We're not doing we're not a spleef, though, because we're, doing... we're not going to put in here. <laughs> no, it's
2: uh... Do you want scissors? Oh, it's all right. My nails are like scissors. Okay, because
1: I have scissors, I'm sure.
2: I've always been one to, you know, I have a. I'm a pothead. <laughs> oh. I smoke a lot of fucking weed. And I would my friends would always like back in high school, my friends would always like challenge me and I'd sit in the back seat of the car while we're like driving on a burn cruise, right? Driving through the back roads of Hollister and I'd have to sit there and roll it without you know, just like this, just nothing, nothing, no surface, no nothing, just in the car, swerving on the back roads.
1: So can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you have any guilt about voting for Bernie now?
2: me voting for
1: Hillary would have made so much of a difference though, but...
2: That's not what I
1: asked. No. You don't have any guilt?
2: No. I still...
0: Were you uh, Were you for uh, Bernie?
1: Um, I thought he would probably would have been my candidate. He would have been
2: the
1: best. I don't... Um, there were certain things about his morale building and the fact that his people were out there like beating up Trump supporters yeah. that I wasn't really so into but I thought his message was good
0: um, but it, you know it was a start in the right direction
1: yeah but you know he had just become a democrat yeah. right like, From, but he yeah. had to I mean see that's just it it's like when I, I, I'm looking forward to the day when we're not
2: when, when we don't party. have to
1: we
0: don't Yeah.
2: yeah
1: a third party would be great a third party would yeah. be awesome. Third, fourth, fifth.
2: Yeah, that'd be awesome.
1: Not, but we're we're so
2: stuck in this binary world. Everything is. this gets funny, back, Glendon, This gets back to
0: male and female, right? Yeah, totally. It, it's that's kind of what I want. Or, right or
1: right and that was wrong. See, that's the thing that Christianity gave to the whole dialogue: right and wrong. There were no other there's you're either no in between yeah. there's no
2: gray area like yeah the like a certain act might be wrong in your eyes most of the time but then like you know when the situation calls for it that's the right decision to make like where do you call that where do you call right and wrong yeah and what's your definition of that it's interesting and i was the, thinking about that on my drive here on gender and sex differences because like not everyone sex isn't even binary but like i i'm a physical anthropologist you know i study (laughs) human remains human skeleton and i was thinking about that it's like especially like right now it's always like identifying it as male or female or like possibly male possibly female or i don't know but why is it and like if someone who as, um, you know, their legal standing is female, but then you have their remains and you're looking at it like this looks most definitely male, but it's because they identified themselves as female or they had a transition in their female or whatever. It was like how I thought it was going to be interesting to see how we're going to figure that out. And ident- like you find an unidentified human remains and you're trying to find out, is this this mis- missing person who claims to be a female? Like, is it? But I'm looking at these remains, and they look what our standards say is a
1: male. It'll be interesting if the chemical treatments do anything. And, you know, now the whole idea is that if you are a young kid, and in fact it starts at, like, the age of two now, Mm -hmm. where people, like, um, decide that their child is trans, and they repress their hormones until... And so, like, you know, we're changing children at, like, from 2 to 10. And yeah. it's just, like, yikes. Right. And, you know, I think yeah. it's really interesting. The trans community is like, yes, these people get to be who they really are. And I'm just but like, Your
2: physical self, your biological not who you self are. is not who you are. So why, like, you, why is our gender or our male female standards basing off of who you are like in your physical self is your physical self but who you are is something completely different why do we have to make them the same
1: because the The Like I
2: identify you know you identify more as a feminine or more as masculine according to our society's definition if you want capitalist rewards
1: you have to you have to be male or female and if you're a butch woman you can get a lot of capitalist rewards you'll be Uh, promoted at work you stop getting harassed on the street you uh you know start having like the power to have conversation Mm -hmm. you know you get all those powers right Uh. I mean that's why people do it like everyone says it's about their gender and stuff like that but that's a bunch of bullshit
0: it's well, not... That's really <laughs> horrible to say. I, no, It's, it's honesty, Glendon. And...
1: I guess, but it, it's not bullshit for everyone. That's not true either, to say it's like yeah, bullshit. I... But I would say that a good percentage is bullshit. It's conformity. It's conformity bias, as we learned in Dr. Kristen Rauch's class. It's conformity bias. Yeah. And, you know, and culture, it's interesting to think of culture being passed on like natural selection where, you know, influences pass it on and things that are most um, easily repeated tend to create culture. And so either or seems to be a really easy thing for people to grasp onto because then that gets them to say, well, I'm this and then you're that and then that way. You know, once you start, like, saying, oh, well, there isn't either or, you sort of end up with, like, where do you go from there? Like, you know, I don't know what to do if I'm not at war. Right. So. That's capitalism. That's <laughs> neoliberalism.
0: <laughs> like in the tunes you have uh, playing in the background there. Thanks. It's a great playlist. I think I, I want to do that more in my show, is have more music, music in the background. Like, I think
2: it makes for more
0: Intimate, because like if you're in a bar setting, you've got always
2: that background music. noise and everything going you know. on, music, something going on
1: in the background. Music says a lot about a person. It does. It
2: does.
0: Yeah. Are you punk rock to the soul, Glendon? I don't know, to the soul. Um,
1: pretty much, though. I don't like things that are that sound the same. Like I I'm really having trouble shopping on iTunes to find new music because I go to the indies department and everyone think, everyone thinks that it's great to sound like Florence and the Machine. Mm. I don't need all that. No like I already lived through Kate Bush. I don't need this all over again. Like I don't know.
0: What's well, the uh you know, what's what's new and exciting is they they recreate these, you know feeding frenzy where they they sign all these similar artists that sound the same you know like when Mumford and Sons exploded on the on the airwaves you know everyone copied that sound with the uh, the banjo and the guitar and the the kick drum on the floor you know you got that with the lumineers which is you know I like the lumineers I do like them um, but that kind of style that you got uh, some other artists that
1: is that what Mumford and Sons is like? Hmm? you don't know who Mumford and Sons is? Uh -uh.
0: um they attacked the airwaves uh, the last five years uh, with uh, their, uh, you know, Marcus Mumford plays guitar, there's, a, there's banjo, and Marcus Mumford is the, the lead singer, guitar player, plays acoustic guitar, but he also has just a kick drum, and he's kicking along to the beat while he's playing. Okay. And uh, they're from Europe, uh, not quite sure whether they're from Wales or whatever. That kind of whole style, like Lumineers, that kind of paved the way for bands like Lumineers and some other stuff. I'm not too hip on, you know, the new, the new stuff, but I, I try to dive into uh, what's popular so I can kind of understand a little bit.
1: I think my new favorite band is Warpaint. Warpaint. I really like them.
0: Had a, They're uh, really good. Yeah, My old bass player, uh, Richard Bonet, actually turned me on to uh, Warpaint. And also, uh, the war on drugs.
1: I don't like them. I can't you don't get into like them? them. Okay, I know. you I, turned
0: into them and war paint.
1: Yeah, I don't know the war on drugs. I thought I would really like them, but I also have a harder time with male vocals. I mean, there's a lot of like I was saying, there's a lot of male vocals on here, but you can't get through rock and roll without right. male vocals. But um, I definitely like in the '80s. I was totally like Cocktail Twins, Dead Can Dance, female, goth, like anything goth. I loved it. I was so goth. I had a really long bang that hung down past my chin, and I put my black pants into my black socks to make them really skinny. (laughs) My mother used to call me Mr. Bland. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh. Oh, my God. My goth days. Ugh. There were some really good pictures of me in high in college in the 80s. Yeah, friends of mine gave me a penis sipper that sit on your beer can, so you're always drinking out of a penis. And we would <laughs> get Glendon really drunk and then just shave like bizarre shapes onto his head. So I just kind of looked like I had manged my whole first year of college. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's one thing I wish. I wish I knew where Jackie Smitrovich and Marcy were. They were cool people, and I lost touch
0: with them. These are friends that you met during your college uh, yeah. career in the 80s?
1: Yeah. You know, um, that later made it impossible for me to continue to go to college. Bastards. But, um, you know, I was so ready to get out of Pittsburgh and just get away from my house. Like, when I went to Pitt, I just started. I met some great rock and roll partiers, and I just, like, I just drank my way through Till I met my first boyfriend, who was sober. So I got sober, too, which you see how that's turned out. (laughs) Thankfully. I mean, I just... um, yeah. I don't know if he was really even an alcoholic. I think he drank. I think we drank the last time I went home. So.
0: Was he more of a uh, social? Uh, no, I think that
1: he had the same issues that I did. He liked to punish himself. And if you could put a label on it, that was good.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> My friend Jason in San Francisco talks a lot about how You know, like, coming out as gay and being gay, like, how that really changes sort of your whole experience of the world. And especially for men our age. And especially men our age who, like, watched half of the population drop dead at our feet. I mean, that was a really horrible time. You would just walk down the street, and all of a sudden, the person you saw that looked completely normal a week ago was like a hundred pounds with like lesions all over their body and you just thought, Jesus Christ like that was really shocking that was a really hard time to get through thank God for the lesbians I mean if it wasn't for the lesbians we would have been decimated now the lesbians are becoming men where are we going
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: what is going
1: on (laughs) not all the lesbians just the butch ones
0: My wife, uh, Brittany, is, uh, is the background uh, commentator uh, in the, uh, the last segment. Segment. She was the uh, official. Uh, is this really your first sit-through with us?
1: Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I'm Brittany, glad
0: you came. I've never,
2: yeah.
0: Brittany normally, uh, I try to set up these uh, this podcast it's interviews while she's I'm at first. work, yeah. so we don't spend our leisure time <laughs> together doing something I consider leisure. Um, yes, this is
1: very leisurely, I'm sure.
0: Well, for for me, Glendon, um, you know, I really, you know, actually for you as well, because you enjoy cultures, such as my wife, is I want to get to know people and share American stories because we are an ever-changing world. And um, I don't claim to be educated at all. I'm a high school dropout. Excellent. Um, Good choice. But I've always been fascinated by... Uh, by people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, people said this a million times on the, the, the podcast. Everybody <laughs> has a story funny. to share. And uh, trying to get Brittany on the show. I asked her a few days ago, I said, hey, do you want to join Glennon and I on the show? And uh, too shy. Too Mike shy.
1: Yeah, you know. It's funny, like I think every you know how everyone should be a waiter just so that yeah. they're nicer tippers? I think everyone should be a drag queen and be forced to host their own show. Like when I was asking people to come and present at the symposium and they're like, Oh, no. it's so free, I don't wanna and I'm just like, Oh, for God's sake. Just like, you know I always got made fun of for my voice and yeah. I became a huge drag star. Huge drag star.
0: I mean, you know, like, uh, like Trump, huge, yeah, just huge. It is so huge, you can't <laughs> believe it. That anaconda. <laughs> mm.